welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebold. This is the concluding episode in Mika Turim Nigren's series on Mark Twain among the Indians, and it appropriately gives the final word to Native scholars. You can, however, look forward to an epilogue co-hosted by Mika and myself, in which we will discuss her journey to and through this project, as well as meet some of her fellow emerging scholars in Twain Studies, who are here as part of the Graduate Student Workshop co-sponsored with the Mark Twain Circle of America. Look for that next week, and next month you can expect our next series, a collaboration with the newly launched Media Studies, Communications, and Design major at Elmira College. We're calling it HBO, From Pulp to Prestige. In the meantime, on the heels of our ninth quadrennial conference on the state of Mark Twain studies, we will have a boatload of fresh material on our YouTube channel and at marktwainstudies.com. Here's Mika Turim Nigren, Reconsidering Mark Twain and the Indians. Hi, I'm Mika Turim Nigren, filling in for Matt Siebold as your guest host on the American Vandal podcast. We've reached the third and final episode of our three-part mini-series on Carrie Driscoll's new book, Mark Twain Among the Indians. Today, we'll address the question that so many of the Twain scholars we heard from in the first episode seem to share. Why hasn't this book gotten more of a response from within Native Studies. Scholars, including Anne Ryan, Susan Harris, and John Bird, explained that for them, Carrie's book did so much to unearth this 19th century discourse of Native genocide and Native erasure that they had never been exposed to in school. As they put it, shouldn't that be cause for attention, maybe even celebration, among people committed to Native issues? whether inside the academy or beyond. The short answer is that in the field of Native Studies, people have been having this discussion for a long time. For them, it's not at all surprising to hear that Twain's negative portrayal of Native Americans has been neglected for far too long. On the contrary, it's indicative of a much broader tendency in literary and critical theory for Indigenous concerns to get swept under the rug. So from their perspective, Although Carrie's book may offer a much-needed corrective to Twain's studies, it's also just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to redressing the systematic disregard for Native concerns in American culture, a project in which Twain may be the beginning, but cannot be the end of the conversation. Our podcast today comes in two parts. First, we'll hear from Drew Lupanzina, professor of early American and Native American literature at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. Drew reviewed Curie's book for American Literary Realism, and together we talk about how our tendency to want to laugh along with Twain often puts us on the wrong side of anti-Native sentiment. We also talk about how Native authors, such as William Apis and Sarah Winnemucca, can offer a much-needed antidote to this toxic tendency in the American literary canon to turn the figure of the native into a punchline. We also dive into the unfinished and frankly bizarre novel that Carrie's book title references, Huck and Tom Among the Indians, and talk about what it would mean for Huck to, quote, go native, as Twain had originally intended for him to do. After that, stay tuned for our conversation with Herman Fillmore of the Washoe Tribe of Nevada. To get us started, I was wondering if I could just ask you your overall impressions of the book and the impact you think it might make on the field. Yeah, I was really impressed by Carrie's book. I thought it was rigorous. It was sensitive to the cultural issues that surround indigenous culture and identity. And she just does an amazing job of excavating these sources and information surrounding these various different chapters of Twain's life that were revelatory to me. You know, I learned a lot from reading this book. 
and the way she delves into the histories at various moments and paints a larger cultural picture, you know, like the Pyramid Lake Wars that were going on with the Paiute when Twain goes out west, as he details in Roughing It, and his trips across the globe and, and his experiences with the Maori and all of this stuff. It's really skillfully done, and it paints a really important picture of Twain's life, his attitudes, and how they fit into the cultural moment that Twain's moving through at the time. Because you're not primarily a Twain scholar, right? You are coming at this from a different angle than I think a lot of people reading Carrie's book. Yeah, I am not a Twain scholar. I'm an Indigenous Studies scholar and an early Americanist. I've taught Twain frequently, and I've certainly thought a lot about Twain. What she's writing about, these were things that have been interesting to me for a really long time. The way that Twain represents Native identity in his work, it's something that I've thought about for a long time. But to my knowledge, nobody has ever done a study on it, and certainly nothing even close to being this comprehensive. You know, I find myself often being the person in the room like, we got to think about this in regards to Native people as well. And that's what Carrie's doing here is saying, you know, once again, we've completely ignored this conversation. I recently wrote an article in which I'm taking to task a number of people who are writing books about critical theory. And the most recent books in the field where and a lot of them, you don't even get critical race theory as part of the conversation. And then like the newest ones start to have critical race theory, but they're thinking about African-Americans there. But like Native Americans, simply it's not part of the conversation. And I think that's generally an effect of longstanding cultural tendencies in which Native people are invisible in our culture in ways that African-American and even Latino and Asian people are not. And we've sort of culturally, rhetorically resigned Native people to the past so that we no longer have to have this conversation. And it's simply not true, right? So bringing Native people back into visibility is really important from a literary cultural perspective, which I think Carrie is doing in this book. She has this metaphor of the work of the book being archaeological, which is double-edged, right? Because it's acknowledging that this has been buried, relegated to the past, something so prehistoric that it's literally underground, and yet that there is this work to bring it up into the light. You mentioned this in your review, that reframing Twain in this way presents such dismal and damning evidence. I mean... Even as I was reading the book, I was waiting myself for that redemptive moment. Like, all right, Twain's going to finally come around, right? And it kind of broke that apart for me a little bit. Carrie kind of, she comes back to this at the end of the book, even at the end of his life. He's still speaking of genocide almost as the solution to, you know, the famous Indian problem. And Twain, like a lot of I guess satirist gets the benefit of the doubt. You know, is this just a joke? Is it him putting some spin on it? And it's hard to reach that conclusion, sort of seeing how the evidence amasses in this book, even though there are certain moments where he's willing to make this turn when it comes to other indigenous cultures, like when he's with the Maori and even with the Filipinos, but he's incapable of making that turn here. And so I think we give him the benefit of the doubt because he's a satirist. And I think we also give him the benefit of the doubt because he's such a thorough misanthrope, I guess. <laughs> I mean, he, he's critical of everybody, right? And because he's critical of everybody, you know, we see Twain in this great critical tradition of being a critic of the U.S., of imperialism, of the U.S. government, of Christianity, of civilization in general. I mean, he makes fun of all these things in really poignant ways. And normally when we're critiquing you know, when we're talking about race, we're seeing people who are defending white culture and champions of white culture, and we don't see Twain in that paradigm. So mm. he sort of slips mm. through our fingers that way. And we have a tendency as critics and scholars and cultural critics to want to side with him on so many things. We see the effect of his critical and satirical commentary, and so much of it is so poignant and effective. And, and funny. And funny. And, and we want to take part in the joke. We want to show we get the punchline. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, he's absolutely the Stephen Colbert of his day and has that incisive wit. And it's such an effective tool. And so nobody wants to give Twain up. It's like, that's important. He's, he's doing some really significant cultural work there. And I think that's how he gets left off the hook. I was wondering if we could return to the discussion of Huckleberry Finn just for a moment. You say that part of the reason we haven't thought as much about Twain's relation to indigenous peoples is that 
Huckleberry Finn is his most well-known book, his most top book, the one that you teach most often. And there is not a lot in there in terms of Native representation. And yet there's this way in which it's actually the precondition of possibility for the book. You know, it's the first line, you don't know about me unless you've read a book named Tom Sawyer. And the way that book ends, the death of Injun Joe is totally necessary to the resolution of everything that happens. And in fact, Huck's liberation from his father, his financial independence, all come about as a result of that. So there's this way that the native has to be killed, which seems like a kind of potential allegory. It is. I mean, the end of Tom Sawyer is the perfect metaphor for the way that issues of native identity and culture are entombed in stone, right? We want to bury it in the past. And that's what happens to Injun Joe. He's locked in that cave and he can't get out. And that's what enables everything else. And of course, Huckleberry Finn also ends with the gesture of, I want to light out to the territories. And uh, (laughs) Huckleberry Finn, as the sort of quintessential American character, the person who exists on this low rung of the economic ladder, but is going to expand westward and find his piece of things. And so I think it is part of the narrative. It's definitely there. Huckleberry Finn, it's a problem, that book. It's a problem that people either want to avoid or we have to embrace and address fully. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of scholarship going on in that direction. and Maybe that needs to happen now. Well, that's part of what is fascinating about Carrie's book is that she places something as received as Huckleberry Finn in a larger cultural and journalistic and in the context of all these different songs and writings and productions. And you see what was going on before it was written and also this curious afterlife in the unfinished novel that gives Carrie's book its title. Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer Among the Indians. So there's a logic beyond Huck Finn. I mean, you know, Twain's breakthrough book was Roughing It. And Roughing It is Twain's own journey out West and the beginning of his sort of narrative arc in that direction. And it's filled, it's just loaded with horrible stereotypes. I read Roughing It. You know, it's one of those books I picked up as a young man long before I became an academic. And I was just like, wow, what an ugly depiction of Native people. And even without any sort of training to pick up on those things, I was like, That's a little disturbing. And of course, I think Carrie brilliantly touches upon his life in Nevada, living with his brother Orion, and how the Paiute Wars were going on. I think they called them the Pyramid Lake Wars. And, you know, he comes in right in the middle of that. And even his brother and other figures, the newspaper editor who sort of mentored Twain in his early days, they actually were quite sympathetic to the Paiute. And Twain is completely unwilling to join in on that perspective. He sort of holds on to the joke, really, for him is that Twain is always so critical of like James Fenimore Cooper and the noble savage and the way he wants to dispel that particular stereotype. But he wants to dispel that stereotype by replacing it with an even worse stereotype, which suggests that Native people, he denigrates them in the most foul language. They're dirty, ugly, smelly beggars, you know, and he really is never able to move beyond that sort of language when he's speaking of Native people. At least stateside, right? Even as he can, as Carrie points out, when he's traveling, speak of the Maori in quite different terms. So this was the beginning of Twain's story where he goes out and roughing it. He's unable to break out of those perceptions of Native identity there, even though he's surrounded by other people who have, right? And I think Orion's poem is a great example of what we could bring in to give that cultural context. But then the other thing is Sarah Winnemucca, who's a Paiute herself, right? She's writing at this particular time. And Carrie addresses this, I think, quite well, you know, at the same time. But the fact that he's oblivious to her, right? That he can't acknowledge that voice and make it part of his understanding incorporated into it. A really strong Native intellectual woman who is speaking to these concerns in a pretty poignant manner at the time and who is well known. I mean, she's performing. She would give speeches all around the country, actually, but certainly in the West as well. And and he had to be aware of those things, right? But despite the fact that he had to be aware of them, they remain out of literary view. But then afterwards, like you suggested, that really weird book, Tom, Tom and Huck Amongst the Indians, right? And so he returns to that later in life. This is the response to Huck lighting out for the territories. And there were a couple of books. 
So that one was never published, but he continued. He wrote Tom Sawyer Abroad and Tom Sawyer Detective, Further Adventures of Huck, Tom, and Jim. (laughs) And whatever redeeming literary qualities or innovations take place in Huck Finn, because Huck Finn is a fascinating book. There's a lot going on there, a lot worth salvaging and talking about. But these other books, they're just terrible. They're just serial knockoffs. But anything that might have been redeeming about Huck Finn, and I don't want to even say that there is anything, but it's all just gone. I mean, this is just broad, horrible stereotype. I mean, we can call it literarily redeeming, even if we don't have to endorse some of its racial politics. Exactly. (laughs) I did want to address this chapter about Huck and Tom Among the Indians, where Carrie does this research on Twain's interest in Native spirituality as he conceptualizes it, which is obviously secondhand and extremely simplified. But there is this plan to make Huck convert to Native. And I know in your review, you found that perhaps a less convincing argument, but I was wondering if I could ask you to speak to what that would do to our received notions of the novel if we thought of Huck as a kind of adoptive figure? Do you think of that as something that would change our reading? You mean if Huck went native? Yeah. It would end up being equally problematic for me. Whatever Twain's flirtations were with native spirituality, I mean, this was all news to me. I only, this was information that Carrie brought to our attention. And I certainly had never delved deeply enough into Twain's letters and journals and other things to have that on my radar screen. So really interesting. But his notion of native spirituality just was entirely reductive. It had no real basis. He read a couple of 19th century ethnographies, I guess, that he was forming some conclusions upon. But, you know, I've read a lot of those ethnographies from the 19th century, and that's nothing that you'd want to inform your worldview on in any way, shape, or form. But typically, when he went in that direction, he was using native spirituality as a kind of cudgel to attack Christianity where he saw Christianity as utterly rigid and didactive and directive and also violent and everything else in ways that he reflexively pulled against. He saw native religion as something that was utterly free. You know, it had no tenets or real belief system or foundation to it. And so it was just another way of understanding native people as completely empty ciphers without rules, without boundaries, without culture, without an actual belief system. And so He could compare the two and pretend that that was favorable to Christianity in this kind of satirical way. And I think Huck becoming native was the same thing. It's Huck always trying to loosen the bounds of civilization, right? Even though Twain ridiculed Cooper's notion of the noble savage, he has his own, you know, native identity represents lawlessness. It represents anti-civilization. It's the complete opposite. And Huck Finn, you know, part of the appeal of that character is the way that he's always trying to peel away from civilization and all of its binds and strictures. You know, the problem with people like James Fenimore Cooper, who had that other vision of the noble savage, you know, the noble savage argument that Cooper was putting forward was always resisted, even in its time. There were people like Robert Montgomery Byrd, who wrote Nick of the Woods, which was kind of a response to Cooper's last of the Mohicans. You know, the argument, are Native people noble, or are they just savages on the lowest rank of human order? Twain kind of falls on the Robert Montgomery Byrd side of the argument. He resists Cooper because he doesn't feel that Native people have a shred of nobility in them. What's dangerous about Cooper is that it isolates this one image, the noble savage. You know, you never see Native people depicted as family members or, you know, like fathers as diplomats or political leaders or Or intellectuals. Intellectuals, as I was just going to say. And so when you just reproduce the single image of the noble warrior with his hatchet in hand, and he's always in isolation and reproduce that a million times over, it's the only image that we have in our heads culturally of what Native identity can afford us or allow. That's a kind of violence, an entirely different kind of violence that's being perpetrated. But Twain wouldn't even have that, right? He's all the way on the other side of the spectrum. So there's this question of representation and the kinds of forms that the Native can take and the kinds of violence it does to reduce them to certain stereotypes. But in terms of the literary question, which is how 
they get represented on the page and what that does to the shape of the prose and the structure of the canon. Cooper is the one who enshrines most famously this idea of the noble savage. But then it's Twain coming along in his parodies that rejects that kind of romanticism as not American. Americans don't write romances. Americans write, you know, gritty satires and down earth, homey kinds of language. What do you think it does to the legacy of perceptions of nativity in America that native representation gets associated with this particular literary style and one that then is coded as anti-American? I mean, obviously, you know, the thing is Twain was right. Everybody knows Last of the Mohicans. Cooper's books are ridiculous. They are pretentious. They are absurd. It's amazing to think that even in the early 19th century, that people thought this was authoritative about Native identity because they are just laughable. And so Twain achieved a certain literary notoriety by puncturing those pretensions. And that's what we love Twain for, bringing us back down to that American character where no nonsense, salt of the earth, rugged individualists, all that stuff. We sort of find ourselves on Twain's side when he sees through these things and satirizes them. But we need to take it the step further to see Twain's shortcomings as well. And so the antidote is, to me, it's William Apis. It's Sarah Wynne Muck. It's even people like Zikola Jar or Gertrude Simmons Bonn. And her work gets taught a lot. And she's living through the industrial Indian schools of the time, like Carlisle and those experiences. Those works are poignant, I think. They're worth reading. But they're also written in a slightly sentimental vein. But she was also a political writer. She was leader of the American Indian movement for many years. She was involved in the investigation by the federal government into the Osage murders, which is being made into a movie right now. They brought her in because Native people wouldn't talk to the FBI and they needed somebody who they would talk to. And she wrote about the abuse that was taking place towards Native women at the time and really difficult subjects that not a lot of people were writing about. And it's like to understand that Native people were not just writing about their stories or their life histories, but were commentators and critics of, of American policy and culture at the time. That's the antidote to it. That's what needs to be introduced and made part of the canon, because it's still not. I mean, William Apis, who I have personally championed, he's in the anthologies now, but I talked about him all around the country. And when I give talks on William Apis, the first thing I ask is, how many of you have actually heard of him? And I get one or two hands. And so that's the thing is they've also been rendered invisible by this discourse. And so it's bringing them into the conversation that allows a new sense of indigenous literary identity to evolve and flourish. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's what Carrie's book is trying in many ways to do, to open up the canon to not displace or dismantle something like Huckleberry Finn, but to put it in conversation with texts that actually make us think about it in new ways. Absolutely. Thanks again to Drew Lopenzina for talking us through the implications of Carrie's book, Mark Twain Among the Indians, within the broader context of Native Studies. We've reached the second part of our discussion today, which features Herman Fillmore, the Culture and Language Resources Director for the Washoe Tribe of Nevada and California. As Mr. Fillmore explains, Washoe tribal leadership has been extremely active in fighting proposals to name local Nevada landmarks after Mark Twain, given the incredibly derogatory language he tended to use against native tribes living in that area. We dive into specific details regarding Twain's use of anti-Native rhetoric, which allows us to unpack the painful legacy of Twain's dehumanizing approach for Native communities today. Mr. Fillmore also takes us through what it's like for Native students to be assigned Twain as reading in school, and offers us new ways of thinking about our pedagogical practice that integrate Native experiences. Mr. Fillmore, I'd like to start by asking you what you think of Carrie's book project overall. As a representative of the Washoe tribe, what's your impression of what she's setting out to do? It's kind of a unbiased 
retelling of history, maybe a more honest and truthful telling of history. Because when we run into Mark Twain, he's always framed as a humorist and everything's meant to be ha-ha funny when oftentimes it was very demeaning and hurtful. Well, it's interesting because people in the Twain Studies community have said, this is such an honest retelling and a grappling with history. And people from Native Studies who have read it have said, you know, I think you're still trying to be a little too nice to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still this air of gold mining, gold boom kind of thing here in the area where that's a really celebrated history. And sure, it was beneficial for a certain class of people, but for indigenous peoples, and specifically Washu people, it completely changed our way of life, destroyed one of our most pristine habitats as far as the Pinet Hills and Virginia City range. The clear-cutting of the Tahoe Basin and various surrounding areas, choking of streams, overfishing of cutthroat trout and various populations of fish that Washu people had really stewarded for thousands of years. Those things are always brushed aside when we talk about the gold boom. I mean, driving through Reno, Nevada today, you can still see imagery of this gold rush era and how celebrated it was as part of Nevada's history, when in reality for indigenous peoples, it was one of the worst things possible. No, it is. I have been through Reno, and it is really striking to see these place names. You'll go through a giant shopping plaza, and it will be named like Three Tribes or something. You're like, what happened here? What are we not remembering? So, okay, so my first question was, I know the Washoe tribe has been really active in campaigns regarding some of these place names in Nevada where people have nominated Twain to be the name for a certain river or site or landmark. And the Washoe tribe has said, maybe let's reconsider. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So I really got to give a lot of credit to our tribal leadership. We've had some really dedicated leaders who care about our tribe, our communities, and our homeland, and are always pushing for things to be done better. Especially when we talk about the Tahoe Basin being such a pristine and beautiful area. I mean, it's a tourist destination worldwide. People travel from all over the place to come there and spend summers or go skiing in the winter. It's a place that's become sort of privileged to be at. I mean, you really have to be able to afford to stay there. They actually are updating their rental agreements and policies for like Airbnbs and short-term rentals and other people. They have second houses up there because it's become so exclusive that there's a housing crisis in the Tahoe Basin right now. And that's almost reflective of why Washu people were pushed out too, right? Not enough space for us to be there and for everybody else to do the things that they wanted. But I will say that our tribal leadership over the last 10, 20 years has really been progressive and wanting to do better by Washu people. So Daryl Cruz had fought against the naming of a cove in Tahoe. The proposed name was going to be Samuel Clemens in honor of Mark Twain. And Daryl Cruz and tribal council at the time said, we can't honor that person on our homeland because he spoke not only negative about indigenous peoples, but specifically the tribe and the name Tahoe, which comes from our language, our word for Lake Tahoe being Da'al. Da'al translates to lake. So when we say Lake Mm -hmm. Tahoe, we're saying Lake Da'al or Lake Lake. So it's always kind of a joke in our communities. That's something that Washu people find funny. But anyway, Mark Twain has spoken out against the use of the word Tahoe historically. I really believe that a lot of his attitudes that were published in various newspapers and articles also shaped the opinions of other people in the area other settlers. And so he's he's not somebody that we look to honor in our homelands because of his derogatory language towards Washu people. But of course, the preference for us is to rename places with Washu names. I was wondering if I could bring in this quote from Twain about Lake Tahoe and give people some context for what's going on there. So this is in Innocence Abroad, which is interesting because Twain is over in the Middle East, he's traveling, and yet he's writing about his background in the Nevada Territory. He says, people say that Tahoe means silver lake, limpid water, falling leaf, bosh. It isn't worthwhile in these practical times for people to talk about Indian poetry. There never was any in them except in the Fenimore Cooper Indians, but they are an extinct tribe that never existed. I know the noble red man. I have camped with the Indians. I have been on the warpath with them, taken part in the chase with them for grasshoppers, helped them steal cattle. I have roamed with them, scalped them, had them for breakfast. I would gladly eat the whole race if I had a chance. So this is a repeated trope with Twain that he fixates on this notion of grasshoppers and insects and dirt and like this visceral disgust. 
What do you make of that? Well, first, I actually want to backtrack. For me, I wanted to go back a couple of paragraphs and actually start from where it says, sorrow and misfortune overtake the legislature that still from year to year permits Tahoe to retain its unmusical cognomen. Tahoe, it suggests no crystal waters, no picturesque shores, no sublimity. Tahoe for a sea in the clouds, a sea that has character and asserts its solemn calm at times in savage storms, a sea whose royal seclusion is guarded by cordon of sentinel peaks that lift their frosty fronts 9,000 feet above the level world, a sea whose every aspect is impressive, whose belongings are all beautiful, whose lonely majesty types the deity. Tahoe means grasshoppers. It means grasshopper suit. It is Indian and suggestive of Indians. They say it is Paiute, possibly it is Digger. I am satisfied it was named by the diggers, those degraded savages who roast their dead relatives, then mix the human grease and ash of bones with tar and guamet thick all over their heads and foreheads and ears and go caterwauling about the hills and call it morning. These are the gentry that named that lake. And so really in this, from a Washu perspective, he really is taking specific digs at us as a people, especially the use of the term digger. It's a very racist term, and a lot of tribes have fought and battled against that, especially on the California side. I think that's often what they were referred to as, and Washu people dragged into that as well because our homeland spans the California and Nevada border. But really here, again, he's not only changing the narrative about what that word translates to, but he's taking a specific issue with Washu people and placing us on this hierarchy of civilization as kind of the lowest people on that rung. And this becomes a common theme in ethnographic papers as well. When research done on Washu people, Paiute, and other California tribes is to set us up as uncivilized in some matter in need of saving. And so while this is an excerpt from a book, it also becomes popular in the minds of everyone in the region and then across the United States because so many people had limited experience with indigenous groups and tribes across the nation. So when we have somebody whose work is widely recognized across the United States, you can see that popular opinion and then eventually legislation and policy are shaped around these attitudes, which then becomes incredibly detrimental to indigenous peoples. Not only is it just words espoused by some individual, but truly becomes the beliefs of an entire nation. Yeah, I mean, Twain is very much working as a journalist at this point. With the innocents abroad, he is sending back these dispatches for parts of the world that people have never visited. And the whole point is that you're getting this lens into something that you will never be able to access if you're not able to take this steamliner across the world. But he's also doing this within the U.S. He's serving the function of the railroad or the newspaper of saying, here's a slice of the country that you may not have known about. And we know that these squibs, these little articles that he writes, get copied, circulated, put into this almost like repetitious circle where, yeah, it very much does get picked up. And this rhetoric does influence how people see the tribal cultures that he's describing. It's interesting, Carrie Driscoll in her book mentions that quote that you used of the mourning practices, where he's describing people in this tribe using ashes, using certain materials as part of their mourning rituals. I have no idea whether he's misrepresenting it. I'm guessing he probably is. But the point she makes is that later in life, in following the equator, he writes about the burial practices in India, and he writes about sati and about women on a funeral pyre burning themselves alive. And he reacts with a certain kind of dismay and bewilderment, and he really circles around this for a long time, but never discussed. The visceral disgust is distinct. And this is a big point of Carrie's book, that when Twain encounters the Maori, for instance, when he encounters indigenous peoples in other cultures, he's able to marshal a level of curiosity or interest about them that he doesn't seem able to exercise about indigenous people in the U.S. So, yeah, I really think a lot of what he was writing, and especially for indigenous peoples in North America and the United States, was stemming from Manifest Destiny, right? And this idea that America deserved to expand its borders from sea to shining sea. And so in that, by demeaning indigenous peoples of North America in comparison to other indigenous peoples across the world, he's opening the door for people to treat Native Americans how they see fit and really to remove us from land and open up this space because this space needs development and civilization. 
And so when he goes to other indigenous people's homelands, he doesn't have the same perspective because there's not a majority of white people there per se. There's this really colonized perspective of needing to develop this land. And in order to kind of make sure that there's open space for settlers to come into, that means that the Indian problem needs to be addressed. And by speaking lowly of indigenous peoples and Native Americans in North America, again, that opens the door for us to be treated as second class citizens and pushed aside so that somebody else can come here and save us. And that even as Twain is really in really stark and aggressive terms critiquing imperialism abroad, he cannot turn that lens on his own history and the ways that he has benefited as a pale male in the Nevada territories at a certain point in history. No, very much so. Yeah, so in classrooms across America, Twain has been such a fixture for so long that as attempts have been made to try and disrupt that or even teach him differently, starting with African-American families who said, I don't want my children to have to read the N-word out loud over and over and over in class. As attempts have been made to disrupt that, there's been so much pushback from people who just see him as an unmovable cultural icon. What is Twain's position in the classroom in a native school? Do you encounter him growing up? Do you talk about him? So I I didn't attend a Native American school or a BIA school or anything of that nature. When we transitioned to public schools, it was something that I believe my younger brother was reading in elementary school. It is something that's common here and that Indigenous people do face as well. I think at the same time, there's depictions of Indigenous peoples that aren't necessarily highlighted because of his racist attitudes towards Black people. And those are often kind of the things that are put at the forefront. And so, again, that's kind of our first exposure coming from an immersion school where we celebrated our language and culture that we see people of color kind of demeaned in a publication, both African-American people and Native American people in that book. And so it was something that was like a culture shock to us, per se. I mean, we did mention the boarding schools. And so, again, the entire policy around that is kill the Indian and save the man. Can I throw another quote in the mix? Sure. He's kind of making a joke on that same premise. But it's a really nasty one because part of what he's joking with is literal genocide. And part of what he's joking with is that notion of kill the Indian, save the man, of the civilizing mission, which still has this violent rhetoric attached to it. So this is an essay where Twain is writing about the political scene in D.C. and about some of the corruption there. But he's writing about Secretary of War Grant and his method of fighting the Indians on the plains. He writes, I said there was nothing so convincing to an Indian as a general massacre. If Grant could not approve of the massacre, I said the next surest thing for an Indian was soap and education, which are more deadly in the long run, because a half-massacred Indian may recover. But if you educate him and wash him, it is bound to finish him sometime or other. It undermines his constitution, It strikes at the foundation of his being. Sir, I said, the time has come when blood-curdling cruelty has become necessary. Inflict soap and a spelling book on every Indian that ravages the plains and let him die. That was meant as a joke. I assume it doesn't seem very funny. Oh, no. I mean, it's... And again, this is really goes back to him using his platform to kind of also reiterate federal policy, stripping us of our identity and language and culture, which is so much more destructive to our communities. One of the biggest issues that Indigenous peoples face in North America today are standards for enrollment, such as blood quantum, which is really meant to kind of let us go into extinction or force ourselves into extinction by not updating those policies and reevaluating what it means to be an Indigenous person. And so what we're really seeing here again is that, you know, not only is there really direct violence towards indigenous people, but there was also indirect policies that were related to our termination and our extinction. The other thing, too, that needs to be noted is that while this idea of cleanliness is often brought up, I mean, indigenous peoples oftentimes did practice cleanliness far and beyond that of settlers within these areas, especially Washu people. I mean, one of our biggest teachings is to wash up daily to get up before the sun, to when we go to water, to wash up kind of thing and ask for permission to be in these places. 
even with our ceremonies, like our baby blessings and then our girl dances, which are really welcoming into the community and welcoming people into the world, there's an aspect of washing there. So we would wash our children and then our fathers, once their baby is being washed, also go down to the river, lake, or whatever body of water is nearby to wash. During our girl dances, when she finishes the ceremony and then comes into womanhood, one of the last things that's done is she is washed by elder women in the family. So again, this idea that indigenous people were in some manner dirty is really a racist trope. What role do you think Twain should play in the classroom? Is there an age that you think he should be taught? Is there a way you think he should be taught? Or are there other kinds of literature that you think might offer a counterpoint, other kinds of authors you think we should be devoting space and attention to instead? One of the toughest things that we face is that when opportunities to integrate notions of critical race theory to be taught in the classroom, it's met with such objection that there's literally town hall meetings where people are screaming that they do not want their kids to be taught about critical race theory. They're having to bring security to these town hall meetings because people are doing concealed carry. It has gotten really extreme. And so even when people of color are fighting for some sibilance of inclusion in the classroom, just to be able to talk about systemic racism, it's met with such object force that it becomes, a, for lack of a better term, almost threatening to those people of color who just want a semblance of equality, who just want their kids to be taught better. And it's oftentimes framed as somehow white people are going to be put on the spot and their perspectives of identity are going to be diminished. But in reality, what critical race theory is asking for is that for people who are privileged to be able to recognize their privilege so that we can do better by everybody and truly change the systems in which we live in. And so I think the biggest thing is that Twain can be taught, but it does need to be taught with this lens of critical race theory as a reevaluation of history to kind of identify really where we started out wrong as far as dehumanizing another group of people. Twain is great at really riling people up, rile up uh, settlers to rush to California to mine gold. Today, we can reframe that and this can be a teaching moment. So to be able to use Twain in the classroom, acknowledge that he wasn't the greatest person. Oftentimes, the tropes that he uses are very hurtful we can use that to do better. I was actually going to read another quote, kind of goes into a little bit of what we're talking about right now. So I, I like this one, and this is Territorial Enterprise, September 4th and 5th, 1863, Bigler versus Tahoe. It states, I hope some bird will catch this grub the next time he calls Lake Bigler by so disgustingly sick and silly a name as Lake Tahoe. I have removed the offensive word from this letter and substituted the old one, which at least has a Christian English twang about it, whether it is pretty or not. Of course, Indian names are more fitting than any other for the beautiful lakes and rivers in which knew their race ages ago, perhaps in the morning of creation. But let us have none so repulsive to the ear as Tahoe, for the beautiful relic of fairyland forgotten and left asleep in the snowy Sierras when the little elves fled from their ancient haunts and quieted the earth. They say it means fallen leaf, well, suppose it meant fallen devil or fallen angel. Would that render its hideous, discordant syllables more endurable? Not if I know myself. I yearn for the scalp of the soft-shelled crab, be he Injun or white man, who conceived of that spoony, slobbering, summer complaint of a name. Why, if I had a grudge against a half-priced, and this is where, again, the N-word pops up, half-priced black man, I wouldn't be mean enough to call him by such an epithet as that. Then how am I to hear it apply to the enchanted mirror that the viewless spirit of the air make their toilets by and hold my peace? Tahoe, it sounds as weak as a soup for a sick infant. Tahoe, be forgotten. And so here again, we can see like this is an excerpt used to decry the use of the word Tahoe in favor of another name that was commonly used during this time, like Bigler. But here again, he's dragging in other people of color He's also talking about our language as spoony slobbering. And so even this kind of idea of respect for indigenous cultures is absent from a lot of his work. It's interesting because in some ways he sees himself as correcting a previous stereotype of the noble red man from James Fenmore Cooper. Of course, where he swings is to such an extreme of vitriol, but it does make me wonder if there would be a way to teach, you know, an excerpt from Last of the Mohicans 
an excerpt from Twain's Nevada writings and an excerpt from, you know, one of the captivity narratives where you have different kinds of exposures to Native peoples within, as you say, a critical discourse where you're not just saying this is how things are and were and should be, but this is the rhetoric that has come down to us and we have to grapple with it to understand how we came to be today. No, I completely agree. And I think that's what we do in education, right? We try to guide our kids to a better future and let them come to conclusions and think critically about these things themselves. And the only way that we can really do that is to expose them to other cultures and other authors and different perspectives on these same issues. It's very important to let future generations come to those conclusions, but to not whitewash history and ignore the truth when it's right in front of us. I think that's the thing that we're facing today. You know, I think part of what people have found compelling about Carrie Driscoll's book is that she is putting these moments from Twain into a broader cultural and historical context. She's digging into newspapers and letters and journals and articles and songs and magazines and bringing together this densely woven net where you can't just say, oh, Twain was only reflecting the attitudes of his times. Mm -hmm. She brings out other people in his circles, including his own brother, who are much more sympathetic than he was Mm -hmm. and forces us to grapple with what does it mean that he took this position? And I would say on this note, too, like we're talking about Twain as a very historically stagnant figure, right? 1800s, early 1900s at the latest. But what we often run into is that indigenous people themselves are always placed as historically stagnant figures. I mean, there's a celebration of our culture as people of the past, but very rarely are we recognized as modern people today. People don't recognize that there's tribal nations within their backyard. We definitely don't in America understand whose homelands or aboriginal territories we exist today. And here, I think one of the big points is that while we are bringing Twain forward into the 21st century and reevaluating our perspectives on him, the same needs to be done about indigenous peoples and indigenous nations. We have not only a documented history now since contact, but we also have our oral histories, which extend thousands and thousands of years into the past and really shape our worldview. Another hot topic that's been ongoing for the last five to 10 years is this idea of TEK or traditional ecological knowledge and really learning from indigenous peoples on how we can better steward our lands and protect and conserve resources for the future. This is something Twain definitely engages in. For instance, he starts life on the Mississippi with a whole kind of like pop history account of first contact. And in that account, the target of the joke is the idea that the French plant a flag and say something in French, and it's just automatically turned over to the King of France. What a farce to say something in a language that no one there spoke and to claim it for a country across the water. And yet the whole time he's engaging in this trope of the vanishing Indian, that they were already disappearing by the time the white man showed up, that they're already petrified and fossilized and in the past, even already in the 16th and 17th centuries. One thing when you were mentioning that excerpt that came to mind was actually Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book in some of her opening paragraphs, she talks about indigenous people's stewardship of place. And she highlights that because indigenous people cared for this place so well that it seemed like it was untouched. There were vast herds of deer and other animals that were resources for indigenous people, as well as medicines and plants that were widely available. And so she even makes this comparison that if indigenous peoples didn't care for the land so well, Western settlers or settler nations would have never been able to traverse the land as they were. I mean, even... So we saw within the last five years, right, a huge movement to remove statues of Confederate soldiers and other historical figures who were not deserving of the celebration and recognition that they received. And here in our community, you know, even prior to that, we were already making small moves to address these things. I was also interested in the parallel between land redistribution in the Reconstruction era context to the Black farmers that had been working the land for generations as enslaved, unremunerated labor, and the failure of that promise, which, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois calls the greatest tragedy of American history. And the parallels to that and what you're talking about in terms of land redistribution efforts for Indigenous peoples, by stewarding the land, by having a relation to it that is deeper, more meaningful, more beneficial that that is a different kind of claim of possession than any legal article of ownership. 
So I always go back to our creation story because from the onset, we were told that we're going to be a small people as far as our numbers. We're never going to be a large tribe population-wise, but we're always going to be a strong people. And in that same breath, we're also set up that we will take care of this place and this place will always provide and take care of us. I would say, at least on the end of the Dawes Severity Act or the creation of allotments with the Washoe tribe, there was special selection created where although we received allotment land in our Pine Nut Hills here, just to the east of the Carson Valley, we were given zero water rights or even the possibility to obtain water rights in those areas. And so here again is the federal government and others wanting us to be individualistic and creating homesteads on now private property or property owned by individual tribal members but prevented from being able to develop that land in any meaningful way that would allow us to become farmers and ranchers, which is really what this policy was created to do. And when you look into the creation of allotments, you also see the diminishment of indigenous title to land. So specifically treaty lands or other lands that were set aside for indigenous peoples. We see in the allotment era that our homelands diminished almost tenfold. I also want to just give a quick shout out to Vindaloria. I mean, his book, Custer Died for Your Sins, is a great reevaluation of history and indigenous people's beliefs and understanding of the world. And so Vine Deloria was a brilliant man and did a lot of work that was positive in Indian country. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you making the time. I think it's really important to have your voice in this conversation. And I'm just intensely grateful that you are willing to share it with us. No problem at all. That was Herman Fillmore and Mika Turim Nigren. For more about this episode, including a complete bibliography, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash reconsidering twain. This has been an episode of the American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies, co-produced by Mika Turim Nigren and Matt Siebold, with assistance from Joe Lamack. Music written and performed by Quarry Farm caretaker Steve Webb. Our podcast art is designed by Jan Kather, media arts faculty at Elmira College. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.